0: listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Glazer. Today's guest is Ron Flagg from the Legal Services Corporation. We discuss Ron's career, his transition to LSC from private practice, his experience leading a law firm pro bono program while he was at Sidley Austin, and some of LSC's current challenges and opportunities. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Ron, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rena. Good to be here. Okay, let's jump right in. To get things started, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, things like that? Sure.
1: Uh, I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I was the oldest of three brothers. Uh, I went to a public high school uh, just outside of Milwaukee, and uh, then went to college at the University of Chicago and to law school at Harvard. And uh, all of those things were a long time ago, but uh, I've been in practice since uh, 1978, so uh, I think just about my my 40th anniversary.
0: Well, happy anniversary. And... I take every opportunity to talk about my irrational exuberance for Milwaukee. <laughs> when I was in practice, I had clients there and spent a lot of time there, and I just love the town. And now I am flacking a book about Milwaukee. We're actually going to blog about it this week in our summer reading promotion. Are you familiar with the book Evicted? I am. I haven't
1: read it, but I'm, I'm very familiar with the topic, and I know a lot of people who are uh, quite enthusiastic about the book, and I think it's a very important book.
0: Yeah, well, I recommend. It's for such a serious and somber topic. It's like a page-turner. I mean, it reads like a novel, so we're recommending it every chance we get, and I think particularly since it's about someone's hometown, um, you would love it. So anyway, little little tip there for a long weekend or summer's coming up if you're traveling and need a book, we recommend Evicted. So, okay, 40 years in practice. That's going to be very exciting. So let's go back. Why? Why do you become a lawyer?
1: Well, I, I can't say that there was any uh, single event uh, or any family Uh, professional background. There were no lawyers or even college graduates in my immediate family uh, before me. Um, But I do think there is some family connection to my career path. Uh, I I know I had an interest in becoming a lawyer from an early age, Um, and I think my interest was certainly connected to my parents' life stories. They both escaped from the Nazis in Germany during the late 1930s, Uh, my mother coming directly to the United States, my father coming here uh, via England where he was during World War II. And as a result of their experiences, I was raised with a strong sense of the importance of social justice. Uh, I even recall when I was 10 years old, Uh, listening listening nervously to a live radio broadcast covering the voting uh, in the United States Senate on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I think that was in June of 1964. As I recount this, I I see myself as a nerd, but I do remember that. Uh, In any event, I connected that advocacy for social justice And civil rights with lawyers. And I think it was that connection that sparked my interest in pursuing law.
0: So, we're going to talk about your career. You've had an interesting and now we'll say, quote unquote, long career. And we're going to do a little bit of sort of a reverse chronological order. Since June 2013, you've been serving as the vice president for legal affairs, general counsel, and corporate secretary for the Legal Services Corporation. For those that don't know, tell us about LSC. What is the Legal Services Corporation?
1: Well, LSC is the single largest funder of civil legal aid programs in America. Uh, we receive nearly all of our funding from Congress. Today, that funding stands at $385 million annually. And we then grant out about 93% of those funds to 133 legal aid programs across the country uh, that, in turn, provide legal assistance to people living in poverty in every state and territory. Uh, the services they provide tend to be in uh, areas that we might call poverty law, uh, family law, housing, public benefits are probably 80% of the work that they Uh, That they do.
0: And what's your role at LSC? How do you spend your time?
1: I'm the chief legal officer of LSC, and I spend my, my time on a wide variety of issues. First, I'm part of a truly excellent but relatively small senior management team led by Jim Sandman, our president, and as part of that team, I often get involved in addressing LSC's most pressing issues. So, for example, over the past few months, we've been responding to a proposal from the White House to defund LSC, and of course, that issue has demanded a lot of attention from all of us. Second, I work with a great group of lawyers and administrative staff in our Office of Legal Affairs. We handle all kinds of legal issues, the kinds that most general counsel's office deal with, including contracts, dozens of contracts a year, small amount of litigation, uh, internal policies, labor and employment issues, the occasional tax and real estate issues. And because we have started to engage in private fundraising. We also have legal issues related to charitable solicitation in all 50 states and D.C. But then, in addition to those, what I would call general counsel functions, because we are federally funded, Congress has given us authority to write and publish federal regulations. And our office spends a good deal of time revising and improving LSC's regulations and uh, relatedly, issuing both formal and informal advice about the statutes and regulations that uh, govern the legal aid programs that we fund.
0: What are your favorite parts of your job?
1: The favorite, my favorite parts of the job are one, the mission. Uh, for me, it doesn't get any better than uh, trying to help. People with legal needs around the country get that help, and uh, being able to do that 24 hours a day is uh, rewarding in and of itself. Second, we have a I have a great group of colleagues here, both um, my colleagues in the senior management team and uh, my team in the Office of Legal Affairs are wonderful professionals and have become great friends. Um, I think those far and away are the two two highlights of my, my job.
0: You spoke about some of LSE's current challenges, one of which being funding. Um, could you tell us, sort of as we we're sitting here today, what the current state of affairs is regarding the, the challenges for funding?
1: Yeah, let me uh, step back even beyond funding. Funding is obviously a big part of it. The greatest challenge, in my mind, for LSC and our country with regard to civil justice is uh, what a lot of people refer to as the justice gap. That is the vast gulf between the legal needs of people, particularly those living in poverty, and the resources available to meet those needs. Um, I think that gap is directly related to the fact that America's civil justice system was designed by lawyers for lawyers and on the assumption that people using the system would be represented by lawyers. And where that is not the case, which is most landlord-tenant cases, most family law cases around the country in many jurisdictions, 90 percent of people in landlord-tenant courts and family courts are are unrepresented. Uh, Both the parties and the courts are saddled with a system that simply doesn't work well for the people who need to use the system. And the country certainly needs to devote more resources to providing some some form of effective assistance to all people using the civil legal system. I'll give you one example of the dimension of the resources that we're we're currently devoting, uh, as I said before l s c is currently funded at about three hundred and eighty five million dollars annually. to put that number into perspective, uh Americans today spend more than that amount for Halloween costumes for their pets, so we spend as much money for our leading funder of civil legal aid programs in America, as we do for Halloween costumes uh, for our pets. But beyond the resource uh, needs, which are extreme, uh, and another measure of that is the fact that even with the resources we're devoting, probably 80% or more of people with legal needs uh, who are living in poverty are unable to uh, get a lawyer from legal aid programs or elsewhere to meet those needs. So we obviously need more resources to uh, bridge that gap, but we also need to do something perhaps even more fundamental, and that is to re-engineer the way the civil justice system works to make it usable where people do not have a lawyer. If we have courts where 90% of the people do not have lawyers, obviously we need to get more lawyers into those courts, but where the numbers are 90% unrepresented, we need to rethink about the way how the disputes in those courts are being handled so that they can reasonably be handled and uh, resolved in a fair way, even without a lawyer. And I'd say finally an aspect of the challenge that underlies all of these points is that there's a complete lack of public awareness regarding uh, the civil legal system. There is clearly a need for much greater public education in this area, and LSC has been attempting to address this need as well. Unfortunately, most people, I think, get their knowledge or think their knowledge of civil Uh, the civil legal system is depicted on law and order. And so when they see on a weekly basis people being read their Miranda rights, they assume that you're also entitled to be appointed a lawyer if you have a custody case or you're uh, at risk of losing your home. But of course, that's not the case. And most Americans simply don't know that.
0: Those are all great points. And I think they provide amazing context. The Halloween statistic really speaks to me because I think people have no understanding and it's hard to benchmark, especially when you get into big dollar amounts that seem, you know, beyond our own personal budgets, what that means in any big civic context. So I think it's really helpful for for people's understanding. So before we dig a little deeper into other ways that you and others have identified for attacking our access to justice crisis. Let's talk about, again, your professional trajectory. What were you doing professionally prior to joining LSE?
1: Well, I I can proceed chronologically quickly. Uh, After law school, I clerked for a federal district court judge in Milwaukee, uh, and then I went to the Justice Department in, here in Washington for two years, working in what was then an obscure office called the Office of uh, Intelligence Policy. And uh, then in 1982, I joined the law firm of Sidley Austin, and I was there for the next uh, 31 plus years.
0: So what surprised you the most as you transitioned from private practice and law firm life to, to LSE?
1: I'm not sure anything greatly surprised me, but certainly the biggest change was going from uh, a focus solely on litigation to becoming a generalist. Um, it's probably good. I think I'm sort of a dilettante, and from <laughs> that perspective, uh, being a general counsel is uh, preferable to being a specialist. but big firm law practice today is is overwhelmingly practiced. By specialists. Clients want to hire people who have had extensive experience and success in addressing the questions and problems those clients currently face. And the way they do that is to turn to specialists. And there's just, given the comp- competitiveness of the legal marketplace, the need to specialize uh, is becoming more and more acute. Uh, being a general counsel, as the title suggests, uh, is quite a bit different. It uh, requires or permits you to practice in many different areas, which I've found very enjoyable. Um, and fortunately, as a result of the uh, talented colleagues in our uh, Office of Legal Affairs here at LSC we're able to do that. And um, my colleagues make all of us look good, including the general counsel.
0: One of your roles while you were at Sidley was chair of the pro bono committee which you held for quite a long time maybe 10 years a decade maybe longer yeah
1: i think over over 15 years
0: 15 um so how did that come about how did you kind of take that on that position and then we'll do some reflecting
1: well i was lucky in my career at sidley in many many different ways uh, i worked very closely with the managing partners of the firm and of the Washington office. And uh, they were all aware of my interest and devotion to pro bono work and um, allowed me to both pursue pro bono work personally and uh, to uh, hold positions uh, in the firm that uh, helped the firm develop its pro bono practice.
0: How did you balance sort of your, your busy commercial practice with overseeing an amazingly successful pro bono program at a large and major law firm?
1: I think the answer is the firm was generous with my time. And uh, while I'm certain I made over the course of my career some sacrifices in compensation, uh, they were many times overcome by any 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 uh, compensation that I lost by devoting myself to pro bono was uh, overwhelmed by the uh, personal f- fulfillment I got by doing uh, pro bono work and by uh, overseeing the firm's pro bono uh, programs and um, so for me um, the pro bono work was a labor of joy and I always uh Uh, made time uh, for it, and the firm was supportive of that. And so I was able to both have a successful uh, paying practice but devote myself substantially to pro bono work as well. I was very lucky.
0: You have written that one way for us to leverage the limited resources available to legal services providers is to expand the role of the private bar in providing civil legal aid. And you had firsthand view of this while you were at Sidley. So based on your experience, what are some of the techniques and strategies that help us do that? How do we get more people involved in pro bono?
1: Well, I think one key, uh, no matter where you are in the legal universe, is leadership. Um, So if you're talking about the context of the bar generally, it's critical that leaders of the bar and the judiciary hammer way at the point that pro bono work is an integral part of our profession and um, perhaps even more importantly that those leaders devote substantial time to developing programs that can help link attorneys to clients who need but cannot afford assistance. Um, Likewise, in law firms, I think leadership is really a critical ingredient in developing a strong and impactful pro bono program. Uh, Big firm management must do, and in my experience, in the successful firms does do three things, at least. One is lead by example. When law firm leaders themselves are active in pro bono work, it sends a strong message to their colleagues that pro bono work is important to the firm. Second, when law firm management enacts policies, maybe policies regarding... Uh, pro bono hours and how they relate to billable hours, maybe policies regarding the need for partners and other senior lawyers to be active in pro bono work and supervising the work of younger lawyers. Um, that clearly helps promote pro bono. And I think it's important that firms make affirmative commitments to areas of pro bono practice on which the firm can focus and which will maximize the impact of the pro bono work that uh, a firm does. Sidley, for example, during my time had four firm-wide signature projects. One was a capital punishment project that involved uh, taking roughly 20 cases uh, from Alabama uh, uh, 20 death row cases from Alabama. We had an asylum and immigration project. Uh, We had a veterans benefits project and a project devoted to representing individuals and small businesses engaged in farming and fishing in Africa and and Asia. And those were all areas in which clients' lives or the courses of their lives uh, were at stake and the impact that individual lawyers could have on their clients' lives was as evident and uh, as a result those were the kinds of cases people went to law school to work on and uh those were the kinds of cases many dozens of lawyers w- were attracted to and were you know willing to uh put in extra hours uh to 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 uh, work on at the same time as they were billing time
0: Could you share some examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you?
1: Well, again, I've been fortunate to have had uh, an opportunity to work on lots of projects, cases, and with lots of different organizations, but I'll mention two that um, are particularly meaningful to me. Um, A little over 20 years ago, uh, I and two colleagues at Sidley were contacted by a lawyer for two women who sought to adopt uh, their young foster child who had ingested LSD in utero. Um, At the time we were contacted, the D.C. Superior Court had ruled that D.C. law did not permit two unmarried individuals to file a joint petition to adopt. And since at that point in time, gays and lesbians were not permitted to marry under D.C. law, the Superior Court's ruling meant that uh, gay and lesbian couples could not jointly adopt children. We agreed to take the case, and what we learned was that our clients had devoted themselves to helping their foster child, hiring teachers and tutors and doctors and uh, rearranging their own careers to uh, help raise that child and so we recommended that they not immediately take the case on appeal but instead file a, a motion for reconsideration and put into the record all of the work that they had done and all of the love that they had shown that child and that's what they did, and they were able to persuade a different Superior Court judge, Brooke Hedge, who was reassigned the case, to rule that D.C.'s adoption statute requires that the best interest of the child be paramount, and that the plain language of the law did not preclude joint adoption by unmarried individuals where the uh, best interest of the child <clears throat> was having those two unmarried individuals adopt, And Judge Hedges' opinion was appended to the D.C. Court of Appeals' opinion that by a two-to-one vote um, agreed with her conclusion. And uh, that certainly is a a meaningful case to me. Uh, And then second, for over a decade, I worked with the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights on public education issues. Um, Public education was uh, important to me, I think, of public education as perhaps the most significant civil rights issue of our time, and um, much of the work that I did with the Lawyers Committee involved public advocacy, including preparation of lengthy public reports. Uh, which we generally collaborated on with several law firms and lawyers' committee staff. And uh, we also put together testimony before the D.C. Council on behalf of the Lawyers' Committee and uh, another related group called Parents United for the D.C. Schools. And we, with the help of many other advocates and leaders, succeeded on several key issues on which we had focused, one was uh, <clears throat> public school governance. For decades, the mayor and the DC Council on one hand, and the DC School Board and Superintendent on an, on the other hand, had engaged in a blame game in which each side blamed the other for the horrendous shape and performance of the DC public schools. And uh, we, with others, notably Adrian Fenty, were able to ultimately persuade the council to give control of the schools to the mayor. So, uh, most importantly, the blame game ended because it was then clear who was accountable for improving the schools. It was the mayor. And we also devoted substantial efforts to advocating um, for... Uh, a vast overhaul of the physical infrastructure in the schools. The D.C. public school buildings were in decrepit shape uh, 10 years ago. They were on average at that time over 75 years old, and despite that, for years the district uh, had failed to provide enough money for maintenance and had provided little or no money for rebuilding the schools. And uh, as a result of our advocacy and the advocacy of others, and again, Adrian Fenty is a leading figure. The district uh, is in the midst now of a multi-billion-dollar program to replace or modernize the DC public school buildings. And if you drive around the district in almost every neighborhood, there are uh, a number of new and beautiful schools that say to our kids, uh, far better than we did uh, 10 years ago, that uh, we care about your public education.
0: Well, thank you for sharing those two amazing examples. I know it's always hard to pick (laughs) and choose. We could be here talking about, you know, amazing pro bono matters for a long time, and it's always hard to select just a few. So it's summer. It's summer associate season, and that is mentoring and nurturing on my mind, and I was hoping you could share some advice that you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers.
1: Well, I do have some advice, and it's going to sound somewhat contradictory, I think. Uh, I would advise be flexible and steadfast. Um okay. These are obviously, at a minimum, intention, but I believe both traits are either helpful, at least helpful, if not indispensable, for um, professional happiness and success. Um, As a lawyer, many opportunities and challenges will come your way, and you need to be flexible to take advantage of unexpected opportunities and to meet new challenges. In my own career, for example, I've been heavily involved with uh, many different groups, uh, the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Legal Counsel for the Elderly, the National Veterans Legal Services Program, and the DC Bar, including the Bar's Pro Bono Program. and. The one element that weaves through all of that, those involvements was that my involvement was serendip- serendipitous uh, in each instance. Somebody said to me, hey, do you want to help out here? And uh, I generally said yes. And that flexibility uh, permitted me to turn in new directions. I hope it helped me to help the clients of those programs. And I am certain it benefited me. Um, At the same time that flexibility is critical to uh, survival, steadfastness is also virtue. Many of us went to law school because we wanted to help people. Maybe we read or saw To Kill a Mockingbird and were inspired by Atticus Finch. Whatever That original motivation, that original instinct for having become a lawyer, being true to that instinct over the long haul is important. For me, it caused me to devote substantial portions of my time to pro bono work when I was in private practice, and it also caused me to want to devote the last portion of my career to public service, which I've done. And uh, I think having that beacon, that public service beacon in mind throughout my career uh, was also important.
0: Those are great tips. I'm going to take it to heart. I think whether you're just starting your career or you are more, let's just say, quote unquote, mature, I think those are great, uh, great uh, guide stars for us all to keep in mind. So, Ron, let's wind down with this. Who are your pro bono role models? Could you share some of them with us?
1: Well, I have one in particular, and I think others probably will have shared her name with you, and you know her well, which is Esther Larden.
0: Yes, of course. So tell us more and why you picked Esther.
1: Well, I think all of us, and certainly Esther, recognize that our pro bono time both individually and organizationally, for those of us affiliated with large firms or organizations, that our pro bono time is scarce, limited, and as a result, very valuable. The needs to be served by pro bono are, by contrast, vast and seemingly limitless. And what Esther always drew from that and taught me and many others was that pro bono work should therefore be done strategically. The goal should be to change policies, um, develop projects or programs that would help large numbers of people by developing expertise, by proceeding strategically, um, by developing economies of scale by treating our pro bono practices really in the same strategic way we planned and executed our uh, commercial for-profit practices and um, I know both when I was at Sidley setting up our firm-wide projects and as uh, board chair of uh, the National Veterans Legal Services Program for example. Esther was an invaluable resource for um, providing guidance on how to set up uh, the best and uh, most impactful pro bono programs possible.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for talking to us about Esther and for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure and incredibly inspiring.
1: Well, thanks, Rena. It's uh, I always enjoy talking about pro bono work, and I particularly enjoy talking about pro bono work with the Pro Bono Institute, with with whom I've had a, a long and uh, very happy relationship.
0: Oh, thank you so much! Thank you so much to Ron for making the time to be with us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments feedback, and suggestions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about us, you can find us on the web at probonoinsd.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.